Good morning. My name is Joel. I am... <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'm the associate pastor of community groups and discipleship um, here at Bay City. And uh, the sermon today, our, our topic of discussion today is actually the process of discipleship. So I should hope that I have something to say along these lines on this subject. Um, but I have to shoot straight with you up front. There is something that I have a deep-seated uh, animosity towards that I just can't stand um, the sight of or the existence of. And uh, I need to say that first in order to kind of give context to, the, to what my story that I'm about to tell you. I cannot stand mission statements, purpose statements, vision statements, value statements, you know, the, uh, and some of you are chuckling and I'm thankful for that because some of you are almost as skeptical and hesitant as I am about these sorts of things. And I don't really know why, like, that's a weird thing to just say like up front, I hate this, you know, I can't stand this. Um, but I, maybe it comes from 10 years of teaching. Uh, I was a teacher for 10 years before coming on staff at my, at my city. Uh, how many of you teachers in the room? We got some teachers. Yeah. All right. Awesome. A bunch. And so you guys are going back in like a week or so. I'm sorry you came to church today to forget about that sobering truth. Uh, but some of you have already, some of you are already in training. Um, and, for, and without a doubt, some of you probably walked into the first day of training and an administrator or a higher up said, man, we have got this thing this is revolutionary. This is groundbreaking. Um, this little statement or initiative is going to absolutely change the culture and the makeup and the mindset of all of your students. Man, when they were dragging in before, they're just going to come bounding into your classroom, ready to learn, man, ready to be transformed, to renew their minds in education. Um, and the funny thing is that that same higher up probably said the same thing to you two years ago about another vision statement, mission statement, purpose statement that they unveiled. And two years before that, and two years before that. And so you're always like, you know, retooling, reshaping, starting from square one, whatever it is that you do as a teacher. And maybe this is the same in the business world. I don't really know. Um, but we're always kind of recycling this thing. And I just kind of have this, you know, I think of it as the gift of discernment. My family and friends use other language like cynicism, grumpy old man, get off my lawn syndrome, you know, I mean, uh, but I, I just kind of approach those things with a degree of skepticism and kind of a, you know, uh, an arm's length sort of a mindset because I never feel as though they adequately encapsulate what we do, what you do as a teacher or as a professional or what have you. And so I had a little bit of egg on my face when I came on to staff at BCF. And one of the first things that Pastor AK did was to assemble uh, several of the discipleship pastors on staff, men's discipleship, women's discipleship, community group um, mobilization, and come together and said, hey, what do we mean when we say that we make disciples at Bayou City Fellowship? What does discipleship mean to us? And we crafted a... Wait for it. Mission statement. <laughs> Value statement. Um, and we articulated what it means to make disciples at Bayou City. And I, I have to say, though, for all of my skepticism and cynicism and hesitation, uh, I, that was one of the more profound, encouraging meetings that I have had, um, certainly as a, as a professional uh, teaching and pastoring alike, um, mostly for a couple of reasons. One we found that we were very much on the same page. We were using 
almost the exact same language of what it means to make disciples. Um, some of us now, uh, some of us might in our wiring sort of emphasize a relational aspect, you know, so we use terms like life on life or do life together, speaking of buzzword and cliches and things like this that uh, have no meaning until someone gives them meaning, right? But we might emphasize this or we might come over here. We might emphasize the teaching um, or the, the opening up God's word and hearing from God's word and, and conforming ourselves to the word of God. And so, but what we said was we wanted to crank up the volume on both of those things. They were not mutually exclusive. They weren't two different ways of doing discipleship, but they had to go hand in hand with one another. And so we came up with this short statement that I want to spend some time today unpacking for you. We said that to make disciples at Bayou City means helping one another follow Jesus by hearing and obeying his word and being transformed. Now, some of those, some of those things are going to require some explanation Um, But what was so encouraging to me is that we did not make this up out of thin air. We did not go and visit 20 other church websites um, and figure out what they said about discipleship and sort of just kind of cobble together a statement, an amalgamation of all of these things and say, okay, here, here we go. You know, we kind of took the best of all these different worlds and here's discipleship. We said, from the word of God, what is Jesus's heart for his disciples? And let's stick with that. So you're familiar with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. How do we do that? By teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded them. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But, so there's that. But I wanted to spend a little time today in John 17. And I wanted to show you one of the things, uh, one of the prayers that Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. John 17 is commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer. It is a prayer, it is the longest prayer that we have from Jesus. And it is a prayer that he prays right after they have taken the Lord's Supper uh, and right before he is handed over into um, his captor, to the hands of his captors um, and makes his march towards the cross. And so what is Jesus praying for his disciples on that night? Now, if you know that you're going away, for a short time, you might have a particular message to the people that you love that are nearest to you. Um, and you might, that message is gonna say a lot about your heart for your family or your friends, your loved ones, um, all the more so if you do not intend to come back. Um, so Jesus, in chapter 17, I'd like to read this for you and then we'll come back at it uh, one piece at a time and we'll see what Jesus is asking for, asking the Father for His disciples, starting in verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. 
What is Jesus asking for his disciples? Well, let's start in verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Much is made of God's will. Many questions are asked about God's will for our lives. Most of the time, these questions are centered around what's God's will for my career? What is God's will for the person I'm going to date or to marry? What is God's will for children for us? What is God's will for what city we should live in or what church we should attend or all of these sorts of things? And I'm not saying that there aren't biblical foundations and guidelines and principles for thinking about any of these decisions. But what we forget when we ask those kinds of questions is that God has most clearly explained his will to us in one thing. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, by sanctification, what I mean is the process by which we more and more accurately reflect the character and the heart of God for ourselves and for the world around us. So what do I know about God's will? Well, first and foremost, I know that God's will is for me to be made more and more into the image of his son, to come more and more into fellowship with him. So that all of these other things that we really like to weigh ourselves down with and get stuck in get a lot easier if our first and foremost point of concern in our lives is that we are becoming more like Jesus reflecting more of the heart of God for ourselves and for those around us. And Jesus says, sanctify them specifically in the truth. Notice that he's not saying, uh, excuse me, and your word is truth. I didn't finish the statement. Notice that he doesn't say your word is true. This is not an adjective. This is not a description of the word that it is true alongside many other things that are also true. He says it is truth. It is the center and locus and fountainhead of everything that is true. Everything that you know to be true and trustworthy and right in the world is founded upon the word. What do I mean when I said the word? Everything that God has instructed going back to the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded, okay? Your word is truth. And I have to confess that I do not always embody the same view of God's word that I see the writers of scripture and Jesus himself embodying If you go, don't turn there because I'm going to fly through it. But if you were to read through Psalm 119, Psalm 119, notably absent from our series on the Psalms, maybe in part because it's 174 verses and we would be here for a very long time unpacking all of that. But Psalm 119 is a monstrous poem intended to lift up and to praise the word of God, the statutes, the commandments, the laws of God. And so let me fly through here and let me just read over you a few statements that the psalmist makes about God's word. Here is how the psalmist thinks of God's word. Verse 20 of Psalm 119, I am continually overcome with longing for your judgments. Verse 43, never take the word of truth from my mouth for I hope 
in your judgments. 45, I will walk freely in an open place because I study your precepts. Verse 62, I rise at midnight to thank you for your righteous judgments. 72, instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 89, Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. Verse 92, if your instruction had not been my delight, I would have died in my affliction. 97, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. 103, how sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commands. What would it look like for you and I to share that sort of reverence and awe and longing and yearning for the word of God? I think it would be transformative. So when we talk about discipleship, What we are doing is we are helping one another to follow Jesus. How? By hearing and obeying his word. Why? Because we long for it. We yearn for it. It's a delight to us. We get up in the middle of the night and we think about it because it's on our minds. It's on our hearts. It shapes everything that we do. Do you know that in the gospels, there are 111 distinct, direct references to the scriptures, to the Old Testament, most of them from Jesus himself, quoting 20 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, had an incredibly high view of reverence for the word of God. And so if you were here a few weeks ago, when we went through our series, as we were going through our series on the Holy Bible, I cannot claim this um, this kind of coin a phrase, turn a phrase. Uh, I, I heard this from Pastor AK and maybe he didn't make it up himself either. But we said, if the living word needed the written word, how much more do you and I, who have written no words, need the written word? If Jesus himself said, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How much more do you and I need to depend on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? How much more? Why don't we? I think that one of the primary reasons for me in my life and my experience is that when I read scripture alone, by myself, I often run into confusing passages, passages that I do not understand. And I think, gosh, what does this mean? Don't I have the Holy Spirit living in me? Why is he not illuminating this passage? Why don't I understand what this is really driving after? And, and then I become frustrated and I actually, I, I set this thing down, I set it aside and it starts to collect dust on my nightstand Not because, I think most of us, if you are here this morning, you probably intuitively have a high view of scripture, of God's word. You would not be here if you did not have some degree of reverence for the word of God. So practically speaking, in the day-to-day, 
why don't we bear this out? Well, I think it's because it can be scary. It can, it can be concerning for us to get to a passage and to say, I don't know what this means. Why don't I know what this means? How do I live this out? What am I supposed to do with this? And we come back over to John 17. Continuing on in Jesus's prayer. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. A couple of things about this. I would suggest to you that one of the best ways to be consistent, if you are not consistent today, one of the best ways to get consistent in having a reverence and a high view and to soak and meditate on and live in the word of God is to do it not in isolation, okay? Christianity knows nothing of a scriptureless faith and Christianity knows nothing of a solo faith. So when we come together, we can help one another to follow Jesus because we can lo- look at the scripture and we can say, what does this mean? What, you know, help me understand this one with another and we can push one another deeper and deeper and farther and farther along the road to following Jesus with everything that is in us. But one, another thing that I wanna say about this 20 and 21 in chapter 17 is that Jesus is praying specifically here for you and I. Now, it's a, it may be concerning to you to hear from me today that much of scripture is not written to you and I. Now, before you ride me out of the room on a rail, it is certainly written for you and I. It is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness that we may be complete, lacking in nothing. It is good for all of life and godliness, but it's not written to you. It's written for you. And a lot of our hangups when we're reading scripture have to do with making that leap. What is, if God is speaking this, if the direction, the audience of this book is ancient Near Eastern or first century Jewish or whatever, how do I make that leap, that application to my own life? And yet here in 17 verse 20, Jesus lifts his gaze to the Father and prays directly for you and for me. I pray not only for these, his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Rhetorical question. How many of you have come to believe in Jesus by the words of those who wrote about him and spread his message to the entire world. Every single one of us. And what Jesus is praying for you on the night in which he is betrayed, he is saying, may they all be one as you father are in me and I am in you. Do you see that? That our unity as a body of believers Globally, BCF, your community group, you can zoom in and zoom out however much you want. Jesus' view of the unity of the people of God is that it should be modeled after 
and striving towards the very unity that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have experienced one with another for eternity past. I don't know about you, but I'm scrolling through Twitter and I'm scrolling through Facebook and I'm watching the news yesterday and it feels as though unity in any subculture, subcontext of our culture is anything but possible, is a far off hope, a pipe dream. Feels like we're the farthest thing in the world from it. And yet what is our solution? So many people want unity. Everybody wants unity. And yet we are pouring, pouring energy into institutions and into um, you know, bodies that cannot possibly sustain the kind of unity we desire because it's not founded on the person, work, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ himself. Nothing short of that is going to hold up for the unity that we are after. So being one means a few things. Being one means we are not consumers. Now, you may have come in today and from Bayou City, you're, what you intend to consume uh, is good worship and, and you got that. Or what you wanted to consume is good preaching and you got in and you realized it wasn't Curtis this Sunday and so you left and you headed for Cyprus. Well, joke's on you. Robbie's in Cyprus this weekend. So, <laughs> But maybe, next, maybe this week you're going to go somewhere else for your singles ministry. Or you're going to go somewhere else for your community groups. Or you're going to go somewhere else for, you know, you name it. Fill in the blank. And you are consuming, you are taking from 12 different ministries across five different churches. And I just wonder if that is actually breeding the kind of unity that Jesus is asking and pleading with the Father for in this prayer. I just wonder. I'm not saying that there's anything evil about going on a mission trip with another church. But I wonder what is at the root? What's at the root of that? Is there something of a kind of cultural consumerism that church is there for you that is at the root of that? I'm just asking. Being one also means that we forgive one another. So maybe it's possible that the reason that you are consuming from several different places is a resistance, maybe something in your past taught you that if you press into unity with any one group of people, then they're going to let you down. And the truth of it is you are absolutely right. It will absolutely let you down. We will let you down. I will let you down. There is no one that you can, that you can run to or find short of Jesus himself that is able to shoulder that burden to never require your forgiveness. And yet the example that is laid out for us in scripture is that we ought to forgive one another even as God in Christ forgives us. Ephesians 4, 32. 
Jesus models this for us in the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. Or Jesus, on the cross, nails in his wrists, a nail in his feet. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Unity means that we model that same forgiveness that our Savior modeled for us. And then lastly, being one means that everyone is invited. I don't have to tell you to go and to spend time with people that are exactly like you. Any of us can do that. I tell my community group leaders in, development, in, our, in our leader development class that if you think of community within the body as just another social gathering, then there are a half dozen other places that are just as interesting as community groups to get social gathering. What's interesting is that many people are leaving the church and they say, I want diversity within the church. My church doesn't have this diversity. And then in replacement of that, they go to a coffee shop and they meet with four other people that all love film festivals and NPR and carbon offsets and they have church together. There's no diversity there. There's no, I don't have to tell you to hang out with people that are just like you. You're gonna do that very naturally, right? The culture says, asks the question, are we compatible? Are we compatible? The church says, we are compatible because we both, we all follow and lift high the name and person of Jesus. And so all of the other things that might like to divide us and to separate us and to drive wedges and cause friction, all of those pale in comparison to the fact that we come together as often as we can in remembrance of the sacrifice and the salvation that he won for us. If we have that in common, we can find, we can find unity. We can find fellowship with one another. When we get together, say community groups, I'll use community groups as an example. When we get together in homes across the city this fall, we ought to be able to look, your neighbor ought to be, look, be able to look into your window if you've got neighbors that kind of creep on you like that, be able to look in your window and go, well, what is going on in there? I mean, this is just, no, no, none of these people, I wouldn't find any of these people together in any other context. Why? Because we have Jesus in common and that is more than enough. When the whole world is losing its mind, we come together and we get to be that city on a hill, that light to the world that says there's a better way. Coming back to the high priestly prayer in verse 23, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one. Why? That the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That the world may know Discipleship, helping one another follow Jesus by hearing and obeying his word and being transformed. Transformation never 
terminates on itself. 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says, he has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. So when you were at your darkest, at your worst, and Christ reaches a hand down to you and says, come, follow me. Believe, repent, follow me. He doesn't yank you out just so you can give him a big bear hug and go, what do we do now? You turn a hand around to the next person and you say, look, right there, the risen Christ, follow. He's got the words of life. Where else do you wanna go? And we get this picture One of the coolest passages to me in the New Testament is Acts 19. When you and I do this, when we reconcile one another because we have been reconciled, the world is going to know because the gospel creates tectonic shifts in the culture around you. In Acts 19, we're gonna put the passage up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But in verse 23, they're getting together and Paul is sharing the gospel with the Ephesians and many people are coming by the droves. And what's going on in Ephesus is there's actually a very booming business for silversmiths that are creating idols and shrines to the goddess Artemis. And this man, Demetrius, gets together. And in verse 23, he says, about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. Major disturbance. The way is a, way, is a particular uh, way that we identify Christianity in the book of Acts. It's called the way. I love that. The way. Um, and 24, for a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for, for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Go figure. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worshiped. The gospel comes into Ephesus and whole socioeconomic structures are torn down because people realize that there is only one God to worship and they abandon their business And they have been in their purchasing of these shrines of these false gods. What would that look like if you and I come together and disciple one another? If we help one another to follow Jesus by hearing and obeying everything in his word. And we become more and more transformed into the image of the son of God. What's that going to look like? What if... What if your neighbor's marriage that's fallen apart, what if that guy, that man or that woman comes to you and says, hey, I see you. I see the way that you treat your wife and your kids. 
I see people coming into your homes and you welcoming all types of people and folks. Why? What is different about you? What compels you to do that? What if that's an open door for the gospel to go out in your very neighborhoods? What if you live three blocks down from a brothel in the city of Houston? And I know that some of us do. We know that they're out there. What if because we met in community groups and discipleship groups around our city, what if we lifted high the name of Jesus in such a way that people said, this is not, this isn't working. This is evil. This is wrong. This isn't God's intention for the world. And what if whole socioeconomic structures collapsed? What if sex trafficking went out of business because the disciple, because discipleship was happening in our communities? What if racial reconciliation didn't feel like such a far off hope because people were able to watch you in small groups, one-on-one, with your families, with your church. And they said, I want what they've got. I want so much of that. Because I see it, because I see it lived out, I know it can happen. And I want the words of life, where else would I go? When we help one another to follow Jesus, when we open his word, when we, when we know that it is the sufficient authoritative word that gives us life. When we compel one another to follow Jesus and be obedient to that word with everything about us. May God open our minds and our hearts to see how powerful that could be There is no other institution in the universe like the church, like the body of Christ that is able to shoulder that burden and to lift people's eyes to the Father, to Jesus, and to say, look, come and follow. Where else would you go? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are not silent. You have spoken to us through your word. We thank you for reconciling us, for drawing us out of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. I pray, God, that you would give us a desire that you would stir up in us this week when everything is going crazy around us, God, would you stir up in us the courage to say, look, I may be an imperfect person, but I'm following Jesus with everything that I have. And would you come and follow? Would you come with me? I wanna be more like him. Would you make us more like you, God? We raise our hands and say, if you're gonna work in the city of Houston this week, would you work in us? in our families, in our workplaces, in our church, in our communities. We pray all these things in your son's name, amen.